0: Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ on this final Sunday of the Epiphany season as we come near to the Lenten tide. It's a delight to be here. Thank you so very much for your hospitality in these last few days. I'm grateful for the consistory and their kindness and for the unity of mission that they have shown very clearly as I have spent time with them. It's very hard to think of a story so epitomized in our culture as that of David and Goliath. In fact, any time, as you know, when a little guy beats the expected champion, we're bound to hear the phrase, well, that is a David and Goliath story. Malcolm Gladwell has become a millionaire after his best-selling work David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. And For the record, I find much good in the book, and I certainly don't want to be an iconoclast of David and Goliath stories in our society. There is something surprising, isn't there? Something magnificent about defeating big giants. There's something undoubtedly surprising about defeating big serpents in our culture and society. But what about God's economy? How does God... Project that message into his own revelation if we live in a genesis 315 world which we do a world where the seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent we should as a people expect that unexpected characters would assume positions of power we should expect that the humble would be exalted and we should expect that the less visible will receive greater glory in the kingdom of god This is the great message of the Epiphany season. An unexpected seed of a woman coming in time, receiving gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and then dispensing them, granting them, giving and spreading them throughout all the nations. The Goliath narrative, we might say, would have you think that gifts belong only to those who are in power. But the David narrative would have you think and believe that a child could share those gifts with all the nations of the earth. And what is it we must consider? What is it that the child shares and gives to the nations of the earth? What kind of supreme gift is embodied in the very ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ that he is capable, aware, And that he might give into the peoples of the earth as a gift that is acceptable and a gift that is transformative among the nations. What is the greatest gift that Christ can give to the world? The greatest gift that Christ can give to the world is the head of a serpent crushed. The head of a serpent crushed. It is Christ himself who displays a crushed serpent's head, as a gift to his bride. That is his wedding gift to his bride, the Holy Church. This is not your classic hallmark story, is it? Indeed, this is not your standard of Jane Austen Victorianism. But it is the biblical narrative for us this morning. And at the end of the period of the judges, in the days of Samson, the Lord's visits, our Lord God visits Israel with both judgment and mercy. Judgment falls on the sanctuary. Judgment falls on the house established at Shiloh. But at the same time, we already begin to see the nascent narrative here that the Lord himself is raising up a priest, a prophet, a judge by the name of Samuel to prepare the way for the coming of the new order of things, the new way of life, the new civilization, the new society, the new world. Now, this order is contrasted very clearly for us in Samuel's narrative in 1 Samuel 17. And what we see in the contrast of these houses is that the first house is established by Samuel's faithfulness to the covenant God. And the other house by Hophni and Phinehas is established by unfaithfulness, by direct disobedience by a failure to keep God's covenant promises and his laws. Eli's sons don't serve God. They don't listen to their own father, whereas Samuel listens to God and listens to his father-like mentor Eli. One house sins against the sacrifices. One house sins against the liturgical symbols of God's world, treating Yahweh's house like a den of thieves, mocking the liturgy of the house, and sinning sexually against God's house. an amazing contrast isn't it and until this day the sins against god's house remain the same they are liturgical sins and sins of sexual immorality but here what we see is that god is building his house he is building his refuge his fortress and throughout the old testament what we're going to see is that a false house will seek to rise itself against the house of the righteous against the true house, competing against the true house, serving as a pugilistic pundit, attempting to discredit the labor and the work of this true house. In other words, unfaithful and wicked leaders will pursue, will desire, will seek out the destruction, the overthrow of the faithful leadership in the true house of Israel. And that is why a major theme we see throughout the scriptures is the rise of satanic like figures emerging like demonic forces from Sheol itself, seeking to destroy all of God's anointed servants, those who would speak on behalf of Yahweh, those who would proclaim faithfully the message of Yahweh, God. And the reason these figures rise with such prominence in the text is because they want to undo, they want to hinder, they want to keep Genesis 3.15, the first gospel, from coming to pass. The seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 is the key to understanding everything in these great wars, war scenes of history. In every story, there is a friend of the serpent who wants to make sure God Does not fulfill his purposes. In every story, there is someone out there roaming around the great deserts of the ancient world, seeking to stop God's construction project, trying to keep him from fulfilling his great task, from fulfilling the ultimate task of crushing the serpent's head. This is why 1 Samuel is so captivating to the reader, because it's not a metaphorical sports-like David and Goliath. It's literally the David and Goliath story. And we're going to jump into narrative here. What we see is Israel and the Philistines are getting ready for this epic battle. It is one that should be very familiar to all of you. We begin in verse 3. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley in between. Good versus evil, a very clear display of any sort of narrative in the world and in the redemptive story. Good versus evil, the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. And then on, on this corner, verse four, there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion by the name of Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, somewhere between eight to 10 feet tall. And in this case, this tiring figure, this magnificent figure, rising itself as a very embodiment of the seed of the serpent. He comes and he is the one who proposes an invitation to the people of God. And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all Israel heard these words, the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now remember we saw in Sunday school, the Philistines, they worship Dagon. The fertility god who is portrayed historically and in the text itself as a serpentine figure. He is the true embodiment of the seed of the serpent. He is a serpent. He is a devilish character. He is the embodiment of all that is evil in the ancient world. He is the contrast to the sacredness and the holy. And it appears that in Israel's history, in 1 Samuel 17, you remember, we have come a very long way from Deborah's song of victory. Remember that great song? I will sing to Yahweh for he has triumphed gloriously. The horses and his chariots he has hurled into the sea. Yahweh is our strength and our hope and our salvation. That's the song of Deborah. Israel's trust is highly diminished we might say in comparison to that triumphant song. But like any story, in the midst of despair, in the midst of lament, in the midst of psalmic like frustration, there are always remnants of Israel, those who call, who are called to teach Israel that if God is on our side, against us shall be none, none whatsoever. And God raises someone for the occasion to take on this serpentine figure, this seed of the serpent. It is David. It is the sheep keeper. He is the one who comes up and brings lunch to his brothers. And at that moment, he hears a great, tumultuous, voluminous insult against the people of Yahweh. He hears that. And you may begin here to see themes all over from psalm 23 david's Psalm. there is a literal lunch table set in the presence of their enemies we're seeing all the necessary ingredients here of a future deliverer aren't we remember the scene when moses saw an egyptian trying to kill one of his own what did he do what does the man of god do when his own people are being murdered when his own people are being mocked and ridiculed and damaged he acts as a deliverer In 1 Samuel, David heard the enemy threaten to kill the people. And what do you think he will do? He's going to act like a Moses figure. Verse 23, as David talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And here, David heard him. David became aware of the content of the threat. He became aware of the damage that was imposed upon the very name of Yahweh that he had promised to uphold in the third commandment. He now felt the weight, the heaviness, the impulse to defend this holy name when evil men accuse God of not being who he is. And we know what happens. David is going to act nobody messes with my god and my people david makes his case to the people listen i have killed children i have killed lions and tigers and bears when they were trying to mess with my sheep and i'm going to kill this giant look at verse 37 and saul said to david go and the lord be with you remember this language the sacred language that shows up in Ruth chapter 2, and it shows up here in first Samuel. This is a king blessing David with God's peace. This is what the minister does at the end of the service. The peace of God be with you. He is anointing you so that you may have the peace of God to enter into a tumultuous and a chaotic world with his peace. A king is blessing David with God's peace. It's the liturgical language of the church from the days of Genesis, from the days of Samuel to our day. God, our king, blesses us, his people, in battle with his peace, with his shalom. And in this case, the king is putting the hopes of all of Israel in the hands of a shepherd boy. Because he is selected to be the representative seed of the woman, the messianic figure who will deliver his people from evil. And remember what Saul attempted to do Saul attempts to dress David up like the enemy, he attempts to put him in an armor and a robe of enemy like fashion and similarity. He wants David to fight man to man, he wants to use human weapons to fight the enemy. Verse 39, and David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand as he approached the Philistine. Now David chooses what instrument for battle? He chooses stones. He could have attempted to go to hand-to-hand combat. He could have stabbed him, in small like fashion, or something else. But the shepherd boy, he picks stones, even though Goliath is fully armored. He literally chose the most difficult of tasks, the most difficult of instruments to accomplish the goal before him. you ever considered why David chose stones instead of anything else? These are the kinds of questions we need to ask when we read the scriptures. The Holy Spirit does not waste his breath. This is not a random weapon that this Davidic man rooted in the liturgy of Israel picked up. It was not just one choice among many. It was an intentional instrument that David picks up because David knew his Torah. He knew his scriptures. What do we see in the multiple examples of the death penalty that took place in the old covenant scriptures the primary means to kill someone who commits a great crime against god and his people is what it is stoning we have an example of this of a rebellious son who treated the lives of others and put them in great danger in deuteronomy 21 and the instrument of death is stones But the prime example of the death penalty, which is very significant to consider in light of this Davidic narrative here, is found in the blasphemy laws in the book of Leviticus. Here's what the blasphemy law says. And speak to the people of Israel, saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall stone him the sojourner as well as the native when he blasphemes the name of God he shall be put to death by stoning in our story who is the great blasphemer of history it is Goliath David is about to impose the death penalty with the permission of the king to this blasphemer as an example of anyone who messes with the name of Yahweh Anyone who mocks and ridicules, anyone who threatens the very purity and integrity of the land shall be put to death by stoning. And here's the description of that very memorable episode in 1 Samuel. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. Look at the text. David ran quickly. Do you think David trusted his God? There was no trepidation, was there? You have someone who wishes to stop the promises of Genesis 3.15, Goliath. No, David is now ready. He is ready to see the continuation of this line of promise. David rises to the occasion as someone who receives the king's approval to impose the death penalty upon the great blasphemer of Israel, Goliath of Gath. And Goliath knew that this man, he was the one representing Yahweh before him. And David put his hand in his bag, and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine, where? On his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face into the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. No, he doesn't need a sword. He needs one stone to impose the death penalty. What's the promise? The promise is that the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. What has David done? Don't overlook the humiliation of David. The Bible says there was no sword in his hand. David does not need a sword to fight, but he does use one thing. He does one thing with that sword. Then David ran. And stood over the Philistine. Look at that the humiliation is not over yet. The party is not done. He does one thing. Then he stood over the Philistine. He took his sword. And he drew it out of its sheath. And killed him. The implication is here that he was dying. He was at the state of death. But David finalizes his death here. And he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead they fled. What else do we know? David decapitates his enemy, the enemy of Yahweh. He stones him, he decapitates him. And we know that what David does at this moment is that David takes the body of Goliath, namely his skull, his head, and he walks and travels 18 miles at that point to Jerusalem to bury Goliath's head. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, verse 54. And you're going to see this theme develop as we, as, as your congregation goes through the season of Lent. But it's, it's very stunning to see what's happening here in the Bible. David is the type of Christ. Goliath is the type of the serpent. The connection between David and Goliath narrative and the connection with the events of the Lenten tide are very significant for us. You remember that on Good Friday, the great battle occurred between the ultimate seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. When Jesus and the serpent stepped in the ring and there at that point, winner takes all. And in that struggle, remembers what happens to our Lord. He is crucified. The serpent bruises his heel. The nails are driven through his feet. He was bruised for our iniquities. But ask the question, where is Jesus crucified? He is crucified at Golgotha which means the place of the skull. David came to bury Goliath's skull, and that place where he buried it was the place of the skull. Now, connect the dots, please. Where is Jesus crucified? Matthew says, and when they came to a place called Golgotha, the place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. but when he tasted it, he would not drink it, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. They taunted the Lord of glory, didn't they? They taunted and mocked the Lord of glory, just as Goliath and the Philistines taunted David and God's people. And what we see here is that Jesus was crucified on top of Goliath's skull. He was crucified and his feet rested on top of the skull as if he crushes the head of the serpent. And this all gives us the clear summary that David's story is given to prepare us for the story of our blessed Lord. The cross of Jesus is not a symbol of defeat, it is the triumph of the seed of the woman crushing the skull of the serpent, even at his ultimate moment of death. The cross for us is the place of victory, it is the place where Goliath and the serpent and the seed of the serpent are crushed and decapitated for the glory of our great king. At the cross, our Lord Jesus gave us his gift, gave us the church, his gift of a crushed serpent's skull, a gift that death was defeated, that our sins are forgiven, and that the world is our rightful inheritance, the head crusher, is the Lord of glory whom we worship. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.